Welcome back to the Point of Sale podcast, the show where we talk about great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. Today, I have a very special guest that is Sucharita Kodali, a retail analyst from market research firm Forrester Research. Sucharita, thanks for taking the time out of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Right. So I've been having this discussion with a couple of people in the office and kind of that the battle between e-commerce and brick and mortar is now over. Uh, e-commerce has kind of won that battle and it's transformed into now omni-channel versus e-commerce. People no longer have the option to just have brick and mortar. Do you agree with that statement? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that there is, you, I mean, you can't, or it's very difficult, I should say, to be um, single channel only and only be focused on the physical store. Most services and businesses um, now have to have some kind of a connection to um, their digital touch points and how they are scheduling things or how they're, um, you know, kind of having access to what may be in a store or, or a warehouse. So all of that is, is absolutely integral to being successful now. And um, these are efforts that started like well over, uh, you know, almost two decades ago. And I think a lot of companies were just slow to adopt it. And the pandemic, I think, was sort of the final kick in the pants for anybody who was a little bit of a of a late mover in the space to actually embrace um, digital. So before we get into some of those retailers that are putting forth some really you know great omni-channel offerings, let's talk about some of those that haven't bit the e-commerce bullet yet. It's, so we see a lot of the off-pricers and discounters that remain against e-commerce. Do you think that can last much longer? Well, there. Well, that's why I was um, somewhat, um, you know, cautious in the way that I said it. Um, I, I think that there are certain exceptions that have to apply. I mean, the discounters and the off-price retailers have really, really unique businesses, and they get a lot of one-off pieces of merchandise that are actually quite difficult to sell or identify digitally. Um, and it often the economics don't even make sense. Now, um, does that mean that they shouldn't have any type of a digital presence? Of course not. I mean, when you look at sectors like the flash sale market or the daily deal market, um, those are very well suited to the discount world, but those are essentially new businesses. So if a TJ Maxx, um, you know, kind of where it makes sense for it to sell online would be if it were sourcing merchandise very specifically for the e-commerce channel, which in many cases, it I, I believe it is actually doing. Um, but it's really, really difficult for a store like TJ Maxx to have the same kind of omni-channel capability as like a Best Buy. It's not like, oh, you can buy you know, kind of some item that's on the uh, the rack and have, you know, a store associate be able to easily go and find it and, um, you know, kind of have it available for in-store pickup. Um, the technologies that would be required to get to that level would be um, essentially RFID at the item level for every piece of manufactured um, merchandise, really. And if and and to have an ecosystem of um, of providers that all you know kind of can read that RFID tag. So if if you can get there, and maybe you know in twenty years we will, then yes, then it makes sense, and they they should be able to to do what Best Buy does. 
But until we're there and we are nowhere near that now, um, you know, we, we are where we are. Right, so in a recent note, you talked about innovation a little bit. You, you said, if you're a consumer-facing business, let us be the first to break it to you. You're entering the most frenzied phase of innovation you've ever experienced, and consumers won't let you rest anytime soon. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, that was a reference mainly to the amount of venture capital-led innovation that's happening in retail. There are a number of, whether it's direct-to-consumer companies or just different software providers that enable different ways to sell, whether it's through subscription models or whether it's rental models. And that essentially is what we're talking about, which is that whether you innovate or not, there will be an ecosystem of competitors that are not held to any level of profitability that are just trying to acquire customers that are creating really, really aggressive offers that, um, that merchants need to, to figure out how they're going to compete with. So let's talk about some of those rival ecosystems. This year, there's been a lot of uh, push towards Omnichannel, whether it's Target or Walmart, Home Depot. All of the big retailers have made it a big point of emphasis. Which, who have you been most impressed by? What retail Omnichannel strategies have impressed you most this year? Target, definitely. Target has executed, I would say, as well as I think it possibly could have. Um, for years, retailers have been very, very reticent to embrace things like curbside pickup or any type of digital ordering and bring to your car. And Target had it even prior to the pandemic, but they really, really leaned into it. And they have um, essentially a no minimum um, you know, kind of threshold for those kinds of orders when you order through their app. And um, that, I think, has really led to a significant um, market share gain in, uh, in, in e-commerce that they wouldn't have gained if they weren't as aggressive. Um, I think Best Buy has done similar things. They've managed to execute things like scheduling visits to stores. Um, you know, they've, they've been really good with um, especially inventory visibility across channels for years and rethinking what is the purpose of the store, what, how much of the store makes sense to be a sales floor versus essentially a, a local fulfillment center. So they've been really, really interesting in that regard. Um, Nike has also been leaning into Omnichannel for, for years now and is one of the um, you know, kind of brands that I think I would say is one of the, the leaders in that space, whether it is, again, also through um, inventory visibility across channels, in-store pickup, um, you know, kind of under, you know, kind of, you know, shipping from, from store where relevant. So all of those things, I think, are, are really good. Nordstrom has done, um, you know, some interesting things, too. I think they were one of the first ones that I saw that actually allowed, like, curbside returns. Um, so if you want to return something, you know, you can just let them know and, and they'll, um, you know, come to your car and, and take the return. Um, so some of the, the companies that have really been early movers in it just, you know, really embraced it in 2020, really embraced Omnichannel in 2020 and perfected all those little rough edges, I think, that, um, that, were, that were kind of sticking out prior to 2020. 
Yeah, I wrote in my recent newsletter that I thought Boris, and we got another acronym for this industry, but buy online return in store would become kind of a norm in 2021. I wanted to ask you, what do you think about that level of fulfillment from stores? Something like Target fulfilling 95% of its online orders from its stores. Do you think that's viable long term? Well, the main issue with um, shipping and fulfilling from a physical store is that you have to have all of that merchandise for any given order in the store. Um, so if you have, if you have to split orders, um, so it really has to be taken on a case by case basis. If you're a merchant and you know the average number of units per transaction is say three, and um, you know one of those items is almost always in the long tail, so it's not going to be at the store. You're going to have to split that order and send it in two boxes or fill it from two different places, and that doubles your fulfillment expense. And that defeats the purpose of shipping from a store. So if that is the way that you are, it makes zero sense. But, you know, if the average transaction is, you know, kind of paper towels and, um, I don't know, like a nail clipper, and it's it's at your local Target. Um, that makes sense. So so it just needs to be evaluated on a you know kind of case by case basis. Um, the lack of profitability with ship from store almost always um, goes back to splitting orders and not being able to fulfill them from one destination. In which case, then you have to kick it. You should kick it to a warehouse to to be able to ship it ship it you know from from one address. Right. What I did. I'm wondering, like we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, benefits of Omnichannel. We obviously get more people in the store, better customer experience. What are some of the challenges operationally from implementing this Omnichannel solution? We've seen, you know, all of these retailers very quickly spin out uh, Bopus or, you know, bring returns in store or, or a, you know, a flurry of other services to kind of beef up this Omnichannel solution. What are the biggest operational challenges on the back half? Well, there are historically there have been a number of challenges that we've been seeing over the years, which is why these have not been more broadly implemented even today. Um, there's certainly the technology piece, which is can you even identify what's in the store with any level of accuracy? Um, you know, retailers are okay. Some are better than others, but. Um, you know, I mean, if you were to look at, um, a, you know, kind of any given website and say, is this merchandise in the physical store? Um, you know, in some cases, the merchandise is accurately in a store. In other cases, it's not. I mean, Home Depot, I would actually say, is, um, you know, kind of one of the better illustrations of that. Like, they will tell you down to the aisle, the bay number, and how many units are in a particular store. Very, very few retailers have that level of transparency. Um, but that's one of the things that's really essential, um, you know, to executing e-commerce is, is having the technology that stitches that information. Then the store operations piece is making sure that both the counts of that inventory and the location of that inventory are accurate. Um, you know, there have been circumstances where I've seen inaccurate information. I'll try to go tell a store associate or a store manager, and then they just like nod their head and like nothing happens. So there's not a mechanism to um, hold these stores accountable in many cases. And um, there's not even a reporting tool from a consumer standpoint to let um, 
um, you know, kind of people in corporate know that something something is off. So I'm not sure what the auditing measures are that a lot of stores have. But in in my experience, um, you know, kind of from an analyst, when I do, um, you know, kind of mystery shops, I mean, it's it's not it's not well executed. Um, and then the last obstacle is is often at corporate where you may just have um you know, kind of people in corporate who, um, you know, whether it is, um, you know, a merchandiser or whether it's a marketer that, um, you know, just doesn't feel like it is in the best interest of the store to be managing things or the change management is too complex or how are you going to account for the revenue in the physical store if it's an e-commerce order, um, you know, and that's resulted in, in essentially a lot of shadow P&Ls so that stores can get credit for everything. But, um, you, you know, I mean, there there are so many reasons that it hasn't happened that have often been just, you know, kind of retailers getting in their own way. And um, the catalyst really was the pandemic because these people finally didn't have a choice and, you know, people didn't want to go into their physical stores. And if you um, are faced with that, you know, kind of your last option is, well, then bring the stuff out to, you know, the, the parking lot. And, you know, that that forced all of these changes that that we're seeing now. So what you're speaking to, you know, a young, change-desiring person in an industry that is known for being stuck in its ways in the freight industry. So you are speaking my language here. I completely understand retailers not wanting to kind of take the leap and make the next step. So let's get one, one last question for you. And this is kind of uh, about just the penetration of e-commerce. A lot has been made about the growth in e-commerce of the last year. You know, what, depending on who you ask, it's two years acceleration, it's five years acceleration, some even say ten do you think that it's permanent? Do you think that this acceleration is here to stay? And you know, w with that said, can e-commerce grow uh, nominally year over year, given the possibility for uh, you know a generational release of pent-up demand for services in the back half of the year? Um, well, we certainly don't think it's ten years of a leap forward. Um, it's probably a year or two of a leap forward. Um, so, but for the most part, uh, especially in the United States, the the issue is that. We have ubiquitous stores, and it's it's quite easy to shop in physical stores. And um, a significant portion of people, even now, as the pandemic continues to rage, um, are still shopping in physical stores. So I, I think that that um, and the number one reason that people who don't buy online don't purchase online is they do want to touch and feel their merchandise. So that's not going to go away. And um, you know, kind of as the pandemic subsides, um, that behavior is going to to absolutely head back to the stores that are left still standing. Um, so our estimates are that overall um, e-commerce penetration is is now in um, the high teens, low twenties, um, and that was every every year for the last several years. It had been growing a percentage point or, um, you know, kind of if it was 18% penetration last year, it was, it was it would have been 19% this year. I think we leapfrogged to like maybe 21%, um, it, you know, and it's going to vary a little bit from category to category. But the, the truth is, is that the people who said, oh, we're going to leapfrog 10 years, I mean, they were extrapolating data from April, you know, where the stay-at-home orders were and stores were physically not even open and saying, oh, this is going to be permanent. And the truth is that there are still a lot of um, problems and challenges that e-commerce has. Um, it does serve 
selection. It's often convenient and, you know, kind of prices are, um, you know, cheaper on online. Um, but the, the challenges to e-commerce are that you do have to wait for your order. Um, you know, you can't inspect the quality of the product that you're purchasing ahead of time. And, um, you know, you you may just be more more comfortable and it may just be easier for you to just get whatever you're trying to get at a local store. And that especially applies in categories like grocery, where, um, you know, kind of even through the pandemic, it's the vast majority of groceries in the United States are still purchased in physical stores. Yeah, I think it's something about 90, 91% are still purchased in stores. I like that saying you said that you think people were going to rush back to the stores that are still standing uh, because that's, you know, the big point here is that all of these bigger retailers are just gaining market share as their competition dies off and doesn't make it. I, I said that was the last question, but I do have one last one for you, and that is on uh, the challenges of e-commerce. You talk about how, uh, you know, there's a lot of problem with size and fit and being able to touch and feel and know the product before you before you get it. I wanted to ask about the, the pre- and post-transaction process processes involved in the returns process. So it's, we've, in, the, in the freight industry, the re- reverse logistics and returns have been a big point of emphasis this year with the growth in e-commerce. Obviously, they're trying to uh, make, the, make that process as efficient and seamless and frictionless as possible. Those, those terms have become even part of the layman's vernacular. But what about the pre-transaction focus? And that is things like AR and VR or 3D imaging. I've seen uh, you know, Shopify has had incredible results minimizing returns by something like 40% just by adding 3D imaging. What do you make of that? Do you think that 2021 is a year where we see more focus on that pre-transaction process of the returns? So trying to, you know, avoid and avert the return in the first place. I I think that companies have, you know, kind of to the degree that they can, they've they've tried if they can identify a clear culprit. Um, You know, there have been companies like TrueFit, for instance. I mean, their whole business model is to try to avert um, too much bracketing in clothing where you buy like a size up or a size down, um, you know. And then on the other hand, you'll have companies like Rent the Runway that explicitly encourage you to order multiple sizes, um, you know, just to improve your, you know, your level of of satisfaction. Um, You know, so so I think that... um, if there is data that can pinpoint an issue, like there is not enough photography or this product description is inaccurate or, um, you, you know, kind of this, um, you, you know, kind of there's more information, there are more gaps that you can fill to um, both improve conversion and reduce, um, you know, kind of the dissatisfaction that that may exist, um, you know, after you send the package. Um, sure, I think that, that that companies would absolutely embrace that. Um, but a lot of these solutions have existed for some time, and retailers, for you know, one reason or another, have haven't really tackled it yet. Um, one really easy solution, which companies, you know, some companies have been doing this for years. Amazon actually does this in, in some in some of its warehouses, um, but not everybody does, which is, um, you know, kind of photograph the creative um, in the warehouse, you know, because in fashion, which is one of the categories with the uh, highest return rates, they will often photograph samples. And when you photograph the sample, the time between the sample and final production may 
change the the final product. I mean, you know, maybe they didn't get access to the particular fabric or they, you know, kind of decided to change a button or a zipper. And in as a result, the product is actually not what was rendered in the original picture at all. And, um, you know, so so speeding that that production cycle and making it more nimble um, is is absolutely something that companies should be looking to do. Amazon actually does a lot of photography in its warehouse, like once the package, once the shipment, um, you know, is there, and you know, kind of they'll do a lot of three D you know, kind of photographs. And it doesn't even need to be 3D. It can just be like multiple images from multiple angles. You know, the more photographs, I mean, I've never heard of such a thing as too many photographs on a product page. Um, you know, it can be mining ratings and reviews for commentary and feedback um, and, you, you know, kind of understanding, you know, are there, are there basic issues that need to be fixed on the production line of this particular product. So, I hope that companies recognize that this is a rich source of data that they can use to improve their sales, but I don't see it happening yet. I I actually, you know, kind of retailers seem to be more obsessed with trying to capture data they don't have, like, you know, what are people doing on social networks versus mining the copious gigabytes of data that they already do have that are, you know, kind of in the coffers of their their operations. And um, if they could do that in 2021, that would be amazing. Yes, it would be amazing. That's a good way to put it. Use the data that you already have rather than go and try to build more silos and mountains of it that they don't need. So, Charita, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I want to give you a chance uh, to give a shout out to your team or uh, where anybody can go to find research from you or your team. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, we have a blog at Forrester, so you can just Google Forrester blog. Um, also, feel free to follow me on um, LinkedIn or Twitter. I, I post a lot of, um, of news articles and interesting data points that I've seen in those channels as well. But, uh, but thanks, and uh, look forward to hearing from everybody. Yeah, thank you. I second that. Go follow Sucharita on LinkedIn. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. I want to thank our sponsor, Arc Best, uh, for being the headline sponsor here today. Everyone stay tuned for more episodes of Point of Sale Podcast, the show where we break down great retailers, the supply chains that move them, and the data they use to make decisions. Wow. Wow.